our missions month, and we're going to have missionaries on the second or the third and fourth uh, Sundays. But if you turn in your bulletins, you'll notice that there's a faith promise sheet. It's the one that's kind of yellowish. Considering this today, what would be your faith promise? Now, let me say right off the hand. Uh, we're not asking you to fill this out today. We're going to ask you to go home, pray about it, really ask God what he would have you do. We want you to fill this out after you have purposed in your heart and after you have planned in your heart what you want to do, okay? But again, we want you to consider how are you going to give to missions. You know, when it comes to giving, just that whole area of giving, by the way, if you want to turn your uh, Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that's where we'll be most of the time. Um, you know, when you think of giving, money, um, that's a very sensitive issue. And I, and I was, you know, I always figured, well, it's probably just a, you know, a 20th century, a 21st century, you know, sensitivity. But I came across a quote from Matthew Henry, and he said this. He said, how cautious ministers should be, especially in money matters. And then he went on talking about how, we, how ministers should be careful how they preach on money. There's a tendency to think, well, you know, other things are spiritual, but really what I do with my wealth is not. That's more secular. But, you know, there's much in the Bible said about money. In fact, Christ himself, out of the 38 parables he spoke, 16 had to do with money. Some other interesting things about New, the New Testament as far as money. Money is spoken of more times in the New Testament than heaven and hell combined. Five times more is said about money than prayer. Hmm. Five times more said about money than prayer. And while there are 500 verses on both prayer and faith, there are more than 2,000 verses dealing with money and possessions. It's all over the place. It, it, because it hits so close to home. Now, sometimes he spoke, talking about our Lord, and it didn't necessarily have to do with how to deal with money, but he used money as the illustration. We've got to remember, though, money is the least of things. The least. You know, when we're counted faithful, it's on the spiritual side. But money does play in because it's the least of the things that we should be uh, faithful in. If you're not faithful with your wealth, most likely you're not faithful with the greater things, spiritual truth. The preacher Jowett, J.H. Jowett, said this, The real measure of our wealth is how much we would be worth if we lost all our money. That's the real measure of our wealth. What if you lost everything as far as of your money? Would you still consider yourself a wealthy man, wealthy woman, if you're a believer in Christ? Many of us would say, well, no, I've lost it all. Now, again, your real wealth is not to do with money. because We know that because someday we're all going to have to release that, right? It's called death. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, <coughs> Do not lay up for yourself treasures upon earth. Don't lay up your treasures here. That makes so much sense. Of course not. Why would I? Because I'm going to be leaving this place. He goes on. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal and even the government breaks in and steal. Maybe the word... No, well, let's not go down there. Uh, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There will your heart be also. See, where you put your treasure, your heart will follow. 
And many times you, you tell where the person's heart is by their treasure. But again, lay it for yourself. The idea is this, invest. But don't invest in the present. Don't invest in the earthly. Invest in the eternal. So we're talking about investing. That's why your, your outline, the, the title is Biblical Giving Backslash Investing. I want to make sure we get that. It's not just about giving. It's about investing in eternity. Now, we're going to be looking at a group of people who understood that concept of investment, and that is the Macedonians. If you notice in verse 1 of chapter 8, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches, plural, of Macedonia. We're going to be looking at the Macedonian churches, plural, not just one church, but many churches. Again, Macedonia... Uh, is uh, basically northern Greece of today. It would include the churches of Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, uh, Achaia, northern. Okay, Kind of where the, the bay is right there. It's right in the top. There was a number of churches all conglomerated in one sh- small area, and they were considered, again, the churches of Macedonia. But they all had the same type of thinking, giving, sacrifice, now, from where Paul is writing, I mean, from this church in Corinth, they're about 200 miles away. So he's, he's saying, listen, you who are down here in Corinth, I want to tell you about the churches 200 miles away. It's like me saying, uh, all right, let, let me tell you about the churches in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or maybe a little bit farther south than that. Okay, let me tell you about this church. And again, they didn't have internet and all that other stuff, so... Um, you know, yeah, tell me, Paul. Tell me what they were like. Now, again, they were willing. This is a church in Macedonia that was very willing to give. They were, by the way, an impoverished church. And the giving that he's talking about here, I want to be clear on this, is not towards missionaries. It's actually that he is encouraging both the Corinthians and the Macedonians who have already given to give to a fund that was going to help the Jerusalem church. Hundreds of miles away. You've got to remember, in, um, when Pentecost happened, there were all these pilgrims that came for the, the Jewish festival, but then they got saved. Remember the day of Pentecost. A lot of those people, again, that's the first church. A lot of them didn't go back to their homes for some time. Pilgrims that stayed in Jerusalem. Because of that, and because of persecution, and because Jerusalem at the time was a very, very poor area, there was a lot of needs in that area. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we had persecution in Pennsylvania and all of a sudden our church went from 200 plus to 600 plus? But you had to house them, you had to feed them, and then you found out, and they weren't going home anytime soon. And and not only that, but our unemployment went up to 50 percent in Allegheny County, in Steuben County. And so people were out of work, people were, and, and we were becoming a, a poverty-stricken area. Not only that, but we tripled our size of people who take care of the, 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 the Christians that had come over from Pennsylvania. And so that was kind of like the, the situation in Jerusalem. All these people had gone saved, but they stayed. But it was already an impoverished area, and now it was even getting worse. And so Paul and his missionary journeys were telling the churches, you know, let's help the brethren out in Jerusalem and the Macedonians, though they were impoverished themselves. They were in poverty themselves. They were a war-torn country at the time. Rome had, like, basically uh, gone in and extracted taxes and had had, had put them under the, the, the thumb, as it were. 
with taxation and stuff. They were impoverished themselves and yet were willing to continue to give to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Okay, That's why Paul points them out. They were a marvelous example of sacrifice. One man said this, that an example is the most powerful rhetoric. Right? And a good example is the most powerful rhetoric. We can speak, but unless we act, people look at you and say, well, your words and your actions are not, are, are, you're a hypocrite. They're not coming together. So we want to look at this, and this whole passage from verse 1 to 9 is about the church in Macedonia, or the churches. It's not about the Corinthian church. By the way, the contrast is this. The uh, Macedonians up here were impoverished, and they gave out of their deep poverty, and we're going to see that in a moment. The Corinthians were from a very affluent area. They were very wealthy, and yet Paul was having a hard time even getting them to give it all. Okay, So they, he said, well, listen, let me tell you about your brethren 200, 200 miles north. Again, when we look at giving, we have to see it from, from the right perspective. Sometimes we think of it this way. I mean, I've thought of it this way. I went to a church when I went to college. I thought of it this way, that the preacher's after my money. <laughs> I'm not after your money. Okay? But sometimes that's how it feels. But we have to remember what Christ said. It is more what? Blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed. There's more satisfaction. Giving should be one of the most satisfying, joy-producing activities in our life. I'll say that again. Giving ought to be one of the most satisfying, joy-producing activities in our life. And yet sometimes we look at it like, oh, he's going to preach on money. And yet so much blessing is from giving. And it should be from a heart of joy, a heart of thankfulness. By the way, as you look at this passage, I'm not going to read it. We're going to break it down as we go. But it all culminates in verse 9. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is where it's culminating. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, right? He's rich. He became poor. He sacrificed. That's our motto. All right, well, let's look at uh, this passage. Let's just break it right down and give you a number of things of what biblical giving, how is it motivated? How, is it, how, 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 how must we do it? What's our heart attitude? Again, verse 1, we find out that biblical giving, and these are all fill-ins, is motivated by God's grace. That's where it's motivated. Verse 1, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given. Now, notice the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. It's the grace of God that's driving this thing. Again, this is not God's saving grace, rather the consequence of grace. If a person is a believer in Jesus Christ, you've experienced God's grace because you've recognized the fact that your sin condemns you and you've understood the fact that Christ's sacrifice on the cross saves you. And then you've received Christ and you've experienced the grace, something that is, is not deserved, but you've experienced it. The forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Christ. You've experienced God's grace. This is, and now he says, this is a consequence. Giving is not, doesn't get you saved. Giving is a, is a product of because you are saved. It's a fruit of God's grace. So as we look at this giving 
the sacrifice of the Macedonians, we, we don't want to look at it as purely human kindness. You know, you, you have uh, telethons and you get things in the mail and sometimes uh, the things in the mail has to do with, um, you know, help this person across the world and because they're dying of starvation or they need help or they need Bibles or whatever all the needs are. You know, we all have, you know, all this stuff that we get in the mail. And sometimes out of pure human kindness, you write the check or just to get the person off your back. You know, man, will they stop calling me? There's so many people that call you. Um, But this is not that type of giving. This was driven by the grace of God. They were saved. They understood salvation. They understood how undeserved they were. And because of that, they were so thankful to God that they're willing to part with earthly money. Again, it's the grace. Look at... uh, uh, Again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's connecting all these things because of His grace, because of, what, because of what He has done in our lives. So it's motivated by God's grace. Number two, biblical giving rises above difficult circumstance. Above difficult circumstance. That in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. It continued even during a hard time, even through the difficult circumstance, even through the worst of circumstance. This uh, great trial or great ordeal, I think some of the versions say, again, is referring back to their trial. And notice, of affliction. That word affliction means pressing together. It was used of grapes as as they were being juiced. You know what you do with grapes. You put them in there and then you crank it down. Well, they would stomp on them, but then, then they would create pressure to get the juice out of the grape. A lot of pressure. It took a lot of pressure to get that juice out. And, and that's the word being used here of the Macedonian Christians, that they were in affliction, but it was great affliction, great oppression, great distress. But then he also says, not only was it great, but look at its deep poverty. And, and the word is used of like a destitute person, someone who didn't even have enough for themselves. In fact, it was used of beggars. Now, now think about this context here. We're not talking about the Corinthians who had very a lot of wealth. In fact, we have a lot of wealth. Don't we have a lot of wealth? We are the richest, you know, rich, richest debtor nation out there. But the point is, <laughs> but you know, that's real. Um, but, but yet, many times you say, oh, you know, we don't have anything. No, no. He is talking about people who were in a begging state. They didn't even have enough food for their own tables many times. Okay? Um, now, again, if you it, just for time's sake, we won't turn there, but in Acts 17, 1 to 9, we find out why they also got into this destitute state. Acts 17 tells us that Paul preached. They, they, they got upset with him. They couldn't find Paul, but they dragged Jason and his friends out and basically said this. You're going to put down a down payment. If the guy comes back, we're going to take that. In other words, they were being oppressed because of the message. Okay, It wasn't just because there was the area. The area was depressed, but because they were Christians, they were also under great affliction, great persecution. And Paul mentioned uh, their suffering a number of times throughout their books. In 1 Thessalonians, again, one of those Macedonian Christian areas, he said, you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. And so here's a neighbor who hates his neighbor because he's a Christian who promotes Christ. And again, back then, part of the suffering was this. Since I can hurt, I mean, I'm going to afflict you, but I'm going to afflict you by not giving you work. 
Many people back then literally were day laborers. They would work the day for the food at night. And some of these weren't even eating. So Paul is talking to the very affluent Christians in Corinth and saying, man, I want to tell you about the very difficult circumstance that the Macedonians find themselves in, but are still willing to sacrifice. Let's look at the third characteristic of biblical giving. It is joyous and generous. Joyous and generous. I find it interesting in verse 2, as he talks about the great trial of affliction and the deep poverty, notice what he puts in between that. The great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, joy, so joy in the midst of trial, and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Their poverty ended up being transformed into generosity. Do you see how that's different? Verse 2, he gives a negative positive, negative positive, because he's saying, listen, yes, from the world standpoint, they would be considered under great trial and deep poverty, but from God's perspective, they were joyous and generous. So again, biblical giving is both joyous and generous. A lot of joy. A lot of joy. In fact, Corinthians 9, verse 7 says, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart. We're going to go back to this verse in a few minutes. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful. That word is hilarious. That's the word. An hilarious giver. <laughs> in fact, the old German commentator Lenski said this, they made a joy of robbing themselves. Now, I don't know if he used it. I don't know if I'd choose that word robbing that way, but that they made a joy of robbing themselves. They were like glad to give it. Oh, I'm just so glad. Joy, by the way, the word joy there um, is used in the, of the fruit of the Spirit. So you, now you know where it's driven by. In other words, the grace of the Lord I can't give unless I'm truly finding my sufficiency in Him, walking with Him, fruit of the Spirit. Are you joyous when you know that you can give? Or do you find like, oh, no, no, I just want to keep it. Hmm. I always think of Gollum, you know, the Lord of the Rings. Precious. (laughs) You know, we laugh, but you know what? Many of us consider that very precious. I'm not saying I don't at times. They were both joyous and generous. Generous. They, the last word there, they overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. This idea of overflowed is they, they went beyond expectation. But I, I want to I make sure we understand this. When Paul writes the wealth of their generosity, the wealth of their liberality, he is not thinking of material riches. It should really be understood in a spiritual sense. Yes, they gave the physical. I'm not saying they didn't give. But let's face it. The amount that they gave wasn't like a huge amount. But it was like the widow's might. They gave all they had. That's the whole point. That's why he says... See, he's looking at a very, very poor people. Destitute group of people. This, this church. Who's given to another very poor group of people called the Jerusalem church. And he's able to use the word liberality not because of the amount total, but it was because of the amount that they had. It was all they had. It was the widow's might. It's all they had. 
Not only does that word liberality talk about the exceeding expectation, but it also has to do with the single-mindedness. The same word is used in Ephesians 6 where it says, in the simplicity or literally singleness of your heart as to Christ. In other words, there was a singleness. There was a unifying singleness among these churches, among these individuals to say, yes, we want to give. The idea is this. Their eyes were set on Christ. That's why they released their money. Their eyes were set on Christ. It wasn't, it wasn't even that their eyes were set on the Jerusalem Christians where the fund was going to. It was that their eyes were set on Christ. They had a single-mindedness. They were willing to release. They were willing to give. <laughs> you know, sometimes we give because we want recognition. Uh, I went to a college, one of my colleges, and they always had names over everything, you know. And therefore, you could tell who gave the money, right? I read a story one time about a couple. They were going to give, I think it was $13 million, but it turned out they couldn't have their name quite as big at the college, and therefore they withdrew the whole amount of money. That's sad. But there was a story about uh, Charles Spurgeon and his wife. I don't even know what his wife's name was. (laughs) He was so famous, I don't even know who she was. Mrs. Spurgeon. Thank you, Brent. I'm so glad Brent's here because otherwise I wouldn't have figured that out. Um, But anyways, the story is told that they had some chickens and they sold their eggs. But it was always that they sold their eggs. Even close relatives said, would you just give us a couple eggs? And they always would say no. By the way, Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest pastors of the the, uh, 19th century, right? So, but no, no, you can't have these eggs. You must pay for them. And as a result, some people label the Spurgeons greedy and grasping. Oh, he's just out for the money. Won't even give us a couple of eggs. They accepted the criticisms without defending themselves, and only after Mrs. Spurgeon died was the full story revealed. All the profits from the sale of eggs went to support two elderly widows because the Spurgeons were unwilling to let their left hand know what their right hand was doing. They endured the attacks in silence. I like that. In other words, they had single-mindedness. Their eyes were set on the Lord. It wasn't about you. It's not about what you think of me. They were saying, listen, we're selling the eggs, but we're supporting two widows with that money. That's why you can't have them. Now, some would say, just say it. Because they, they wanted to make sure that all glory went to the Lord. By the way, when it comes to giving, we have to be careful that we don't look at, well, what is he giving? By the way, we don't at church. Uh, you fill out these sheets... And other than I think the mission chairman only to be able to write up, you know, how much, you know, is going to be able to be given this next year. It's not like it's passed around to the elders or anything. But the point is, is this. We should have singleness of focus. It shouldn't be that uh, we're doing it so that someone else might know. Let's go on. Verse 3. For I bear witness that according to their ability. That brings us to the fourth characteristic of biblical giving. Is according to your ability. According to your ability. It's personal. It's individual. That's a starting point. It's not a tithe. We have to be careful. Tithe is not biblical. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 12 says this, According to what a man has. Not according to what he doesn't have. The Bible sets no fixed amount or percentage for giving. It doesn't do that with mission giving. It doesn't do that with church giving. It's really up to you. I wish we did have a tithe. I really wish that would be so much easier. You either tithe or get church disciplined or get kicked out. Wouldn't that be easy? 
Wouldn't that be easy, though? Or make giving part of salvation. You know, then you... No, no. No, but what I'm saying is, I'm being facetious because I'm saying that's why people stress tithe. That's why people stress, you know, false religions connecting giving towards salvation. Why? Because it makes it easy. Right? But, but you know what God says? Out of your heart. Grace. This is called grace giving. This is because you love Christ so much and what he's done in your life so much that you see this as the least. You see it as the least. So no, it's not, it is not connected with your salvation and it is not connected with a commandment that says you must give 10%. The tithe is really Old Testament tax. It, was, it went to uh, Israel for their government and if you really want to get serious about it, it was 23.5%. That's really what it turned out to be because it was two tithes plus a third that happen every third year. So again, we're not talking about a tithe here. We're talking about according to your ability. I'll throw this out. Any fixed amount or percentage would prove sacrificial for some and inconsequential for others. That's why it's not. Because some could walk away saying, well, I'm more than willing to give 10%. That's all God wants, you know, and I can have the rest. No, no. This is about us really giving to the Lord. And for some, the 10% or 5% or 4% is a sacrifice. And for others, quite honestly, unless they gave 40%, it wouldn't even be close to a sacrifice because they're making all kinds of money. So we have to be careful how we look at that. It's according to your ability. Number five, it's, a, it's sacrificial. Yes, and beyond their ability. The second part of verse 3, yes, and beyond their ability. Beyond meant something that could even be reasonably be expected. This congregation more, gave more than Paul could ever have imagined. In some respects, it was like a budget buster because what they had wasn't even enough that was left over for even their own needs. But they, were so lo- they just loved Christ so much and they loved other believers so much and they knew they were in such great need. Yes, I'll give it. I'll tell you, that stretch, that right there, that word right there is just, I've been meditating on that. Lord, am I like that at all? I like comfort. I like to have my budget in order and everything. And I mean, you know, that's the crazy thing about messages and preaching and teaching. You know that as a teacher, if you're a teacher, you know, the, the conviction comes on you a whole lot greater than who you're teaching. So it's sacrificial. It's something, it costs you something. It's like what David said to the, um, I knew he said, uh, I will surely buy it from you, talking about the piece of land, for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. I'm not going to do it if it's just non-sacrificial. I'm, I'm gonna, it's going to cost me something. It's going to be like the widow's might. She, she gave all that she had. I remember a story that the, uh, the old preacher, J. Vernon McGee, told. He, it was about a Scottish... Uh, uh, church, and they were going to be doing a building program. And one member of the church was that typical type of Scot, he says, I'm not going to say it, he said it, uh, that was pretty stingy. I don't know if you're from Scotland, I apologize, but I guess that. <coughs> but a deacon came to him and asked, Brother, how much are you going to give to the new church? And the Scot replied, Oh, I guess I'll be able to put in the widow's might. The deacon called out in the next meeting, Brethren, we have all the money we need. The brother is going to give 50,000 pounds because that's what that person was known to be worth. 
The man was amazed. I didn't say I was going to give 50,000 pounds. I said that I was going to give the widow's mite. The deacon replied, well, she gave all. And I thought that's what you meant. I thought that's... It is interesting that God notes not only what you give, but also what you keep for yourself. Let's remember that when it comes to money. He notes not only what we give, but also he notes how much we take for ourselves. So again, it's sacrificial. And number uh, six, it's voluntary. Biblical giving is voluntary. They freely willing, freely willing. Or New American says they gave of their own accord. It was self-motivated. I, by the way, that means I am not going to be here to, to manipulate you. I'm not going to hear, give you pressure. I'm not here to say, we've got to give more. I can't believe that's all this congregation can give. It may be that the Lord has other plans for the money in this church. But the point is, is this, it was voluntary. It wasn't through intimidation. They chose the course of their own actions. Verse 5, the second part, though, says, not as we expected. I mean, it was over and beyond. But again, it's very voluntary. You're going to hear a little bit. By the way, in in Alfred Alma, we don't say much about money. I'm sure if we did, you know, we could probably probably get a lot more. I could make you guilty. I remember the one church I went to one time. I, I I didn't show up for 45 minutes into the service. The service lasted like almost two hours. And the reason was this. They always had between two and three offerings. You know, special thing here, special thing there, then the main offering. And I, I just, so and I would just plan it so that, you know, we're going to get there about 45 minutes late for the third offering. I don't want to hear the rest. Uh, maybe that was cold-hearted on my part. But the point is, is you're not going to pressure me. All right, let's get, look at, keep moving on here. Biblical giving is, is a privilege, not an obligation. It's a privilege. I'm going to veer from the New King James text into the New American because I think it says it more clearly. Verse 4, begging, that means uh, pleading with us. Much entreaty, in other words, very aggressive. They were the ones begging, not Paul. Paul wasn't begging the Macedonians. The Macedonians were begging him. For the favor, the word favor means gift. Of participation. The word participation is uh, koinonia. It's fellowship. It's partnership. All right, so what's the point in the support of the saints? They were begging Paul to take the gift. In fact, there's almost like an indication like Paul might have looked at it and said, are you really sure you want us to, you want me that much? Yes. Yes. In fact, they had to keep saying, yes, this is, we want to bless them. So it was a privilege. They saw it as a privilege. And you might say, well, again, how can I, how can I be, begin to see giving as a privilege rather than precious as far as itself? Again, now, as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive, but just what the Lord says. But if you want more, you can go over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Well, actually, we'll start in verse 6. I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves again a cheerful giver. So why should I give? Because it's, it's, it's the, an agricultural principle. The more I sow, the more possibility of reaping. Some people sow very little. They're going to reap very little. I always think of the farmers in April, May, June, 
as they're planting? What if they decide, you know, I have 300 acres, but I'm only going to plant 50. I'm tired. I'll do the rest in August. They're going to have a very small crop. And every other farmer is going to say, fool. But again, the principle is there. As we give, God multiplies it. By the way, this is not prosperity theology. I don't give a dollar to get a hundred. And much of the, the, the giving back that God does is in a spiritual form. But many times God many times God gives even more wealth to those who give. Like Larry Burkett used to always say, you know, um, God gives me wealth and I shovel it to the people who need it. The only thing is, is God, and then God gives me more. But the only thing is, is God has a bigger shovel. So I shovel it out, but then all of a sudden there's more, and I need to become a better steward of what we have. See, by the way, that is the that is the caution to us. We who are rich, and I would say anybody in America is rich. Very few are actually poverty poor, like deep deep poverty. The more you have, the more responsible you are in eternity. And some of the some of the most faithful Christians are going to be those who had very little, but they sacrifice. And some of those who are going to be found to be the least faithful in eternity before the judgment seat of Christ. You were given so much and you did so little with it for my kingdom. Those are really important things to realize. See, that's why it brings us to 2 Corinthians 9, 7 to verse 7. Uh, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. In other words, if you know the harvest is coming, if you know the more seeds you plant, the better the harvest, you need to see that and say, okay, I'm going to purpose myself. I'm not going to do it grudgingly or out of necessity like under compulsion but I'm going to do it cheerfully. I'm going to plan. I'm going to prepare. It's not out of pressure. It's not out of pressure. It shouldn't be like, you know, with tears in our eyes, the, the, the goodbye dollar. <laughs> right? It shouldn't be like that. See, why do I give? Because Jesus said, more blessed to give than to receive. Why should I give? Because there's a, a principle here. So much, reap much. So little, reap little. But again, we also we go right back to another reason in 2 Corinthians that we've already looked at 8, verse 9. Because Christ gave. He's our supreme example why we give. Christ gave. So again, it's a privilege. That's the whole point of this. It is a privilege. We are blessed through it. There's eternity coming. There's the, the uh, judgment seat. God has given us much. We need to be faithful. By the way, that's why I like preaching about money even though I do it so rare, unless it's in the text, because I'm like encouraging us to say, listen, run the race well. Be faithful to the end because judgment day is coming. Eternity is coming. Don't be, don't be unfaithful with the least. Don't be unfaithful. Well, let's get us back to the text. Look at chapter, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 5. Two more. Biblical giving is at what? An act of worship. It's an act of worship. Yes, it's a privilege, but it's also an act of worship. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord. Remember what Romans 12 says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, he uses the word body, so he's talking about the physical. All the things in the physical are a living sacrifice. At the end of that verse, he says, which is your spiritual service of worship. He's connecting those. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Everything that you have on this earth, including the wealth. 
It's a spiritual act of worship. We have to see that. As I give, it's worshiping the Lord. If there was one downside to the way we give in Alfred Allman is the fact that the boxes are in the back. That's how the normal you know, mission giving and general fund giving is in the back. We, we, we did that years ago before I even came, although I'm still okay with it, because the idea was we're not looking at each other as we give. Okay, I understand that principle. But you know what? I hope that the kids understand. I hope the teens understand. I hope you adults that have come in the last 20 years understand that is part of worship. And whereas some churches pass the plate as they're worshiping the Lord, and it's not about you seeing what I give, we should be like Spurgeon, but the reality is that is worship. And if you're coming and you're not worshiping that way, understand there's a deficiency in your spiritual life, right? Giving is part of worship. We have to see that. And so they gave. They gave themselves first to the Lord. But then it says, and then to us by the will of God. In other words, they were willing to entrust what they gave to the Lord to the apostles, to the leaders of the church. And that's, you know, that's, that's biblical. If you can't trust the leaders of the church with finances, don't trust the leaders of the church with spiritual truth. <laughs> we have to be careful there. So it's an act of worship. And then finally, let's, let's just jump down to verse 7. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. This grace, he's pointing right back to those first uh, six verses of saying the grace, grace of giving. I, I didn't put this one in your outline, but the idea is this. Biblical giving occurs because of Christian virtue. No, notice he says... Uh, that, that you abound in everything else. Now make sure you abound in here. Look at verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love. I'm testing. True love never leaves us content to just talk, but it needs to be expressed. True Christian growth means growth in faith, in speech. That's what true Christian growth is. You're going to be growing in speech and in knowledge and in diligence. But it also means this. We should be growing in our giving. Do you see how he's connecting? Sometimes we talk a good line, but we're not growing in that area. And so Paul says, listen, now he's saying to the Corinthians, I want you to, I want you to understand. Yeah, I, I hear of your... By the way, this is to the Corinthians. You abound in everything else, Corinthians, in faith and speech and knowledge and in diligence. You're a very prosperous church. You're in a very prosperous area. But now I'm, I'm asking you, are you also abounding? Are you growing in this area of grace, this grace-giving? And I'm not sure how it all turned out. Um, we don't have much indication. <clears throat> they gave, but who knows how much. How deep. It's not the much, it's deep. How, how committed. Now, as we close this down, let me, let me give you one last thought. On it. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, because we've been looking at the Macedonians, how they gave to a group of Christians. Now let me show you how the Macedonians, one group in particular, the the, the church at Philippi gave to Paul himself. Because really, as we're looking at faith promise, we're looking at how we can bless a person called a missionary. This is how the church of Philippi, again, one of the many churches in the Macedonian area, these are the, this is the church of Macedonia, one particular one, church of Philippi. And now Paul is writing back to the Philippians. This is about six years after that other offering had taken place, and he's in prison epistle, he's in jail. But look at what he says in verse 14. Nevertheless, you, you uh, Philippians, 
have done well that you shared in my distress. And he's looking back over his life and he's saying, listen, you as a church, you as a group of people shared in my ministry. Just like we're talking about faith promise. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, after I'd been ministering with you in this area, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you alone. They must have been the first one. They were the prime example. They were the ones that said, yes, we're going to put our time, energy, prayer, and finances behind him. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again. See, he went down to another church in that Macedonian area. And this church at Philippi apparently sent him once some money and again for my necessity. Now, he says, verse 17, Not that I seek the gift. Oh, thank you for the gift. And this is how I would approach you. Not that we seek the gift. Our goal, I think, this year is 55000 for a church to support our missionaries. But you know what? I'm not, support, I'm not asking you for the gift for us. Okay, But I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. <laughs> Investment. Eternity be my seat. Eternity's coming. And I, and I am so glad that you sacrificed and gave to me because it went to your account, i.e., Jesus Christ saw it. And then look at what he does. Verse 18 really points to the, the act of worship. Think about Old Testament sacrificial language here when you see verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. Remember earlier in this text he said, I have learned contentment. He says, I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that you sent me. Now, this is what it is, though. Look at the language. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He is like picturing Old Testament sacrifice, which is part of worship in the Old Testament. Listen, your sacrifice for little old me was seen by God, put on your account, and it was a spiritual act of worship between you and God. Yes, I received the funds, and I was able to go forward in ministry, but it was on your account, and it was a sacrifice on yours. It was, a, it was an act of worship. Again, giving to the work of God was an act of worship. And then he, he ends with this, and because you were sacrificial, again, you were poor and destitute, even beggars at times. Verse 19, this is a promise to those who sacrifice to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God will give. And, he, and it's not always finances. Please do not get the dollar and then get a hundred. But he says, my God will supply your need. But who is that to? Who is that to? That is to a group of people who sacrificed to a ministry, i.e. the Jerusalem church, and then continued to sacrifice even before and after to an individual called Paul. The promise of, of supplying all your needs is the individual who is faithful with God's money will be provided for. That's the idea. The person who is faithful with God's money, he's the one that's, that's in, in focus here. That's the person who's going to be provided for. Sometimes Christians say, well, I'm not provided. I think we have to take a, a long, hard look. Are we even being faithful with what God has given to us? And I will say like Paul, not that I want the money. <laughs> Whatever comes in goes out. I have felt that for years. Thankfully, our church has most often been in the black. Uh, I, I can't remember the last time we were in the red. I mean, just even in our annual giving. But, but I want to say this. It's not about the money. It is all about the heart. 
And I want to be exactly like Paul that says, you know what? I want you to seriously... Here, where is that? I want you to go home and seriously consider and purpose in your heart, i.e. plan. Lord, what can I give? Why? Because I want to see that go to your account. I want it on your account. Not at the church, in heaven. We don't want to lay up for ourselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust and thieves break in and steal. We want to lay up for ourselves treasures, in, in, not on this earth, but in heaven. And so I'm asking you to consider not only that, but again, consider your normal giving. Your normal giving to the church, but again, not because we want to be wealthy. No, I want it to your account. I want it to be an act of worship. I want it to be where it's hilarious. Yes, Lord, thank you. I want it to be where, you know, we feel like this. Oh, I, I'm begging. Yeah, let's, let's do it. They were begging Paul to take the offering. Not just, oh, brother, he's coming through, probably going to ask for money again. No, we want to do it because the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor for us. And because of that example, we say, you know what? You've given everything. Everything I own is yours. I mean, what, is, what do we have that's not Christ? And therefore, I'm willing to even give, even of the least, the money, because, again, it's, a, it's an act of worship to him who came for me and sacrificed himself for me. By the way, we're getting ready for the communion table. He sacrificed for us so that we might have forgiveness, that we might be brought into God's family. And he did that all free, right? Remember, salvation is a gift. And for you who may be visiting right now, I want to remind you that communion, taking communion, is not a sacrament that brings grace into your life in the sense of earning your salvation. Salvation is free through the sacrifice of Christ. And all we're doing here is remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. That his, he, the body was broken, the blood was spilt as a sacrifice for us, right? Everything is free. It is finished. We are accepted in the beloved because of Christ. So let's bow our heads in prayer. I would ask that you would, first of all, make sure that you come in a worthy manner. Make sure that you are not allowing any particular unrepentant sin to remain in your life. Don't take the bread in the, in the cup if, if you have sin that has, been, that has not been confessed. The other part would also be this. Lord, free me, free us from the grip of wealth that so many times drowns Christians. Ask God to give you wisdom. What would he want to give? What would he want you to give towards the ministries of missions? Let's pray. And ushers, if you would come forward.